Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And we're back with Peter Muse, author with degrees in anthropology from Bates College and Brandeis University, has been exploring New England legends, folklore, and weird traditions for 20 years. He's been blogging at the New England Folklore since 2008. He's the author of Legends and Lore of the North Shore. Another book is called, of course, his work appeared in Sam Baltrus's 13 Most Haunted Crime Scenes Beyond Boston. Peter has appears as a guest expert on the Travel Channel's Mysteries at the Museum, which is in Warlocks of Massachusetts, another one of his works. Peter, welcome to the program. Excited to be here, and happy Thanksgiving. You too, my friend, and uh, you're living out there in the Boston area, I take it. I am, yeah, just outside Boston. I'm like... Uh... 300 feet from the Boston border, I guess, so pretty close to the city. My mother was born in Fitchburg. Okay, yeah, yeah, more out out west. Yep, absolutely, and Worcester and all that. They used to go out there as a kid every uh, summer. It's a great area. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we've had a really like great fall here, um, foliage-wise. It was kind of late, and then it was really vivid for two or three weeks, and now finally all the leaves are finally gone, so it's... Uh, we're heading into the winter vibe here, I guess. Uh, it is, and winter in on the uh, New England area is winter for sure. Yeah. How, how did you get involved in all these weird things that we're going to talk about tonight? Well, you know, I guess when I was a kid, um, I was one of those kids who was always really interested in mythology and folklore and things like that. So my parents, you know, always had, always had a lot of books in the house. So we had books on Greek mythology, Norse mythology, Roman mythology, all of that sort of stuff. And I really absorbed that. I can remember when I was a kid, like, having a friend come over and dressed up on my Star Trek action figures as like mythology. At the same time, I was uh, a kid in the 1970s, and as you probably know, like, that was a time when a lot of paranormal and sort of occult themes became popular in the mass media. And so, um, and I had an older brother, who was really into things like UFOs and Bigfoot. So we just kind of, I kind of absorbed it that way. You know, um, shows about Bigfoot, UFOs, things like In Search Of, shows about the Bermuda Triangle, all of that was kind of in the atmosphere at the time. So I kind of had these two streams in my head. I had like the folklore and the mythology, then I had sort of the paranormal and sort of the occult that was in the pop culture at the time. And so both of those kind of coexisted. You know, I went to college, got a couple of degrees in anthropology, studied like world folklore, world religions, mythologies, things like that. And then really, when I got out of college, I realized I didn't know that much about New England, like the, the place I lived my whole life. Like I didn't know much about the folklore and the legends of this area. So I started to research, and then it's, I'm still researching. Like It's been a good 20 years, and I have not come to the end of a what there is to learn about the folklore. And oh, it, it's endless out that way. I mean, there's so much that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, I'm glad we're on for a couple hours, but we'll also squeeze in some phone calls with you. This being, of course, the eve of Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving morning now in some areas of our time zones. Let's talk a little bit about tradition, Peter, and uh, Thanksgiving. You've said that people used to dress up in costumes and go begging for food and candy at Thanksgiving, not Halloween. How did that all happen? This is true. This is true. Well, New England was founded by Puritans, right? Puritans who came over here from England. And uh, they did not celebrate most holidays that we celebrate today. So they didn't celebrate Christmas because they didn't think there was any biblical basis for Christmas. They didn't celebrate Halloween. That would have been viewed as a very sort of a satanic holiday to them. 
So they didn't really celebrate a lot of holidays, but they did celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, so for the Puritans, often Thanksgiving was almost a substitute for Christmas. Sometimes it would be in, in November. Sometimes it would even be, you know, well into December. There have been records of Thanksgiving be de- being declared like December 22nd. So it was not set on a fixed date in the past. It would shift around. And so along with Thanksgiving, you think of like in England at Christmas time, people would go out caroling. And caroling, you know, in England was very different than caroling is now. It was sort of like people from the lower classes and young adults would dress up in costume and go door to door, often drunk, and they'd be begging for food and alcohol and things like that. So that tradition, which in England was attached to Christmas, came over here but was attached to Thanksgiving because there was no Christmas here. And so you see records from the 19th century of... um you know, working-class folks going door-to-door to their neighbors' houses begging for food, which they would, you know, they would use to have their own Thanksgiving feast. But also children of all social classes and all social groups would dress up, sometimes disguise themselves as beggars and things like that, hmm. and go door-to-door begging for sugar, begging for apples, begging for nuts, all this sort of stuff. So this is sort of like a precursor to trick-or-treating because there was no trick-or-treating at the time. Interestingly, um, I mean, this was found up and down different areas of the East Coast, not just in New England. But it continued in New York City until the 1950s in some neighborhoods. And if you look online, you can actually see photos of kids in the 1950s dressed up in these sort of beggar costumes. That's going out funny. At Thanksgiving, why did, really why did it wane, Peter? Because of Halloween taking over, probably? Halloween took the place, yeah, because that, that's when became the official time to trick-or-treat. It, that's, it moved to that holiday instead once that holiday became popular in the late 19th century, early 20th century. You had mentioned the Pilgrims, of course. They landed at Plymouth Rock. It uh, is a very old, old town. Uh, what's happening out in that region now? And then it has had some strange things in the hauntings and things like that, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, Plymouth, like you say, is an old town. 1620 is when it was founded. So that's, you know, a good 400 years of that settlement there. So in addition to the, all the folklore about the Pilgrims, it's just has a lot of folklore about witchcraft, um, vampirism, ghost stories, things like that. I was just reading about a ghost account from 17, I want to say 1734. Um, this wealthy sea captain named Thompson Phillips um, built a large mansion in Plymouth up on a hill there. And he married um, the, the daughter of a well-known minister in Plymouth. Unfortunately, the sea captain, Thompson Phillips, he died at sea. He was swept overboard by a big wave as he was sailing to Jamaica to do, you know, trade. Oh, and his wife died shortly thereafter from smallpox. And so the house, this big mansion he built, was left to um, the wife's father, this minister named Josiah Cotton. And so Josiah Cotton was like, I don't know what to do with this mansion. He tried to sell it. The economy was bad. He couldn't sell the mansion. So he decided to rent it out. So he rented it out to probably like five or six different people. It was a big, big building, and these people kind of would set up in different parts of the building. Some of them were working as um, carpenters inside of the building and things like that. And so they were working there for a while when they started to complain that they were hearing strange noises in the building. And uh, some people said the noises sounded like the groans of a dying man, and they would hear those noises coming from the walls. They'd hear the noises coming from the closets. And of course, when they opened the closet, there was nobody inside the closet. 
Um, they would hear noises that sound like a cane, like someone pounding a cane mm-hmm. on the wall at night, but there was, of course, no one inside. So this is sort of familiar stuff, right? People still experience these type of things. Doors would open and close on their own, all this sort of stuff. And also, some of their neighbors who lived next to this mansion would see um, strange lights in the windows at night. Like, there's a, there's a record of a neighbor waking up in the middle of the night, and she sees a strange light moving around the attic. It's a blue light, which is kind of an odd color. She sees this blue light moving around the attic for, like, half an hour or more. So the next morning, she goes over to the mansion and asks one of the people there. She says, oh, you know, was someone up in the attic last night with a candle? And they're like, no, nobody was awake last night at all. We don't know what you're talking about. And so this house, this mansion, gets a reputation for being haunted. And uh, large crowds of people start to gather outside of the house at night to try to see the lights or hear the groans or things like that. And the tenants all leave. They all move out. They say, we can't live in this haunted house anymore. Um, Interestingly, the reverend who owned the house, this man named Josiah Cotton, he thought the tenants were lying because they wanted to break their lease. And so he took them to court to try to get um, them to stop saying the house was haunted because he couldn't rent it anymore because people were afraid to live in the haunted house. So he took the tenants to court. Who would blame them, right? Right, exactly. He took them to court for slander. Um, So he took them to court first for like a, what they call the inferior court, which is the low-level court in 1734. And the tenants were found innocent. The people on the jury said, no, we believe the tenants, we believe the house is haunted. So the minister was like, ah. So they moved it up to the superior court. They appealed it. And at that court also, um, the court found the tenants innocent of slander. They said, yeah, we believe them. We think this house is haunted. Wow. So finally, the reverend just moved into the house himself with his family. And they lived there for like five years, and they reported no paranormal activity at all. Um, and the house is still existing today. I don't think it has a reputation as being haunted these days, but it was haunted supposedly in the 1730s. So, I mean, there's a lot of stories like that from Plymouth. In um, 1800s, there was a vampire story out there, right? There was a vampire story there, which is really interesting. I don't know if you've... Uh, read a book by a, a man named Michael Bell. He's a folklorist from Rhode Island. He wrote a book called Food for the Dead, which Food is about the, the New England vampires called Food for the Dead by Michael Bell. Is, and, he, um, is he still alive? He is still alive, yes. Yes. And in the 1700s and 1800s, there was a lot of tuberculosis in New England, which is, as we know now, a bacterial disease. But at the time, uh, people were not aware of what caused tuberculosis. So in tuberculosis, it's transmitted often, you know, in small and closed spaces. So it will go through families, right? So if, you know, one son gets tuberculosis, then maybe the father gets tuberculosis, and the mother gets tuberculosis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in the 1700s and 1800s, there was a belief in parts of New England that if somebody died from tuberculosis, the first person dies of tuberculosis and then they're buried. And then, you know, another one of their relatives starts to get tuberculosis. There was this idea that the first person who died from the disease was feeding on their family members and from the grave, somehow like draining their mm-hmm. life force. And so there were a few ways to kind of remedy this situation. And the most gruesome one is that, um, you were supposed to dig up the body of the person, the first person who had died from tuberculosis in the family. Um, and if they kind of looked 
like their corpse was undecayed, like it was, you know, fresh and rosy-cheeked and all this stuff. Well, that was a clear sign that they were indeed feeding on their family's life force. And then, this is the gross part, you would cut out their liver and their lungs, burn them to ashes, and then the sick people in the family were supposed to either eat or drink those ashes. Oh, geez. This is supposed to kind of uh, cure the tuberculosis. I don't think it had a great success rate, to be honest, but uh, it had no other medical options at the time. The other option, which was less gruesome, is that, you know, you unearth the body of this tuberculosis vampire, basically. And it's, you know, fresh face, and okay, clearly this vampire is feeding on the family. Then you just have to turn the vampire face down. You don't have to cut out his lungs or liver, you just turn it face down so it's facing the earth rather than facing up. So apparently, like, directing its attention downward prevents it from feeding on the family members. So in... um 1807, there was supposedly a case in Plymouth, Massachusetts, where um, was a large family of like, supposed to be like some like 14 children plus a mother and a father, and tuberculosis was just like going through this. Oh, it was rampant, wasn't it? Rampant, yeah, going through the family like crazy, and so it was down to like one son was left and the mother, and so their neighbors are like, you know, we have to do something about this. We have to help you out. And so they dug up the body of one of the people who died earlier that they assumed was the vampire. And they saw that she was, you know, had, you know, rosy cheeks and looked like she was asleep and not dead. And so they assumed, okay, she is the vampire. And so they flipped her body over face down so she wouldn't feed on her family anymore. It didn't work. I mean, they documented that it didn't work. Supposedly just seeing his sister's dead body was like too much of a shock for the uh, one surviving son. So he like died a week later. And then the mother just lived for one more year before she passed away. But interestingly, um, that appeared in a newspaper in 1822. Someone wrote in to say, I've seen this in Plymouth, Massachusetts. They're so primitive and backwards up there in Massachusetts. It was like a Philadelphia newspaper. After the break, Peter, I want to talk about your book, Witches and Warlocks in Massachusetts. But there are a lot of other things that are tied into Thanksgiving. Like where did the breaking of the wishbone for luck come about? That's Yeah, that's a good one. Um, supposedly, and, you know, take it with a grain of salt, I guess, um, some people have dated this all the way back to the ancient Etruscans, who were the people who lived in Italy before the Romans took that, over. That goes Italy. way back. Way back, right? Like before, I don't know, what, 500 B.C. or something like that. Um the Etruscans, the Greeks, the Romans, all the people kind of in that part of the Mediterranean put a lot of um, importance into birds, right? Like, particularly for fortune-telling. Like, you'd open up the entrails of a bird to kind of read the future, or the flight of birds in the sky could help you understand what might be happening to you in the, you know, in the next week or so. And so, so according to some folklorists, the, um, the wishbone... Which, they, which was called the furcula, which means the little fork because of its shape, that bone had particular power in birds. Perhaps that was some of the power that, you know, was used in the fortune-telling with birds, this little bone called the furcula. And so, you know, having a furcula, a wishbone, was considered a lucky thing, like this is a lucky bone to have. And so that supposedly the wishbone belief dates back to the ancient Etruscans. And then as you move up to... I think the 1700s in England is where they first find, like, breaking the wishbone, where people are kind of fighting over who gets the luck, right? Who gets the power of this hmm. magic bird bone? 
So that dates back to at least the 1700s in England. So whoever, you know, gets the biggest part of the bird bone is the person who gets the luck from that magic bone. And so didn't, interesting. didn't they eat goose more than turkey in those days? They would have, right? If you are like in England, it would have been goose more than turkey. Yeah, I remember um, that from a Christmas carol. He went to the store to get goose for Christmas, remember? Right, exactly. I mean, here in like New England, it was more turkey, but any they all have the same bone. So in the bone, the folklore about the furcula is not specifically about turkeys. It's like any bird that has that breastbone, that kind of forked bone, will do. So you can do it with a chicken, I guess, or a squab, whatever you're eating. Does it work? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm a vegetarian myself, so I haven't done it in a while. So if you do it this year, let me know how it goes for you. Pie crust and apple peels or some kind of love magic? What What were they? Oh, sure, sure, sure. So, um, there was a lot of folk magic in the past, right? I mean, there's still folk magic around now. People read tarot cards or um, experiment with crystals and things like that. But, uh, you know, in the 19th century or earlier, people just didn't have all those material objects the way we have them now. And so often you would just do the folk magic with whatever you had on hand. And so a lot of the magic was about love and figuring out who you would marry. And so, for instance, if you are peeling an apple, like to make a pie, ideally you should peel the apple so all the peel comes off in one long piece. And then you're supposed to throw the apple peel over your shoulder onto the floor. When you turn around and look at the shape of that apple peel, it's supposed to tell you it should form the, the first letter of the person that you're going to marry if you're an unmarried person. So I haven't tried it myself, but um, that's another one of these old folk stories. Um, also, there's a slightly spookier one um, that if a young woman wants to figure out who she's going to marry, she should take an apple and a candle, and at midnight she should stand in front of a mirror and eat the apple. And there's like a little chant she says, something like, um, whoever wants to marry me, come and share this apple with me, or something like that. Jeez. This apple staring into the mirror. And then she's supposed to see in the mirror the person who is going to marry her. Oh, that's weird. A little Adam and Eve, almost, it sounds like. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Also, it's, got a, it's a little spooky, right? Staring into mirrors at midnight is not, like, the most comforting uh, thing always. Uh, you know? Exactly. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.